Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. Well, our sermon text opens by telling us that, um, that after Mary received the news from Gabriel that she is going to give birth to the Messiah, she immediately went to visit Elizabeth. Look at verse uh, 39. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste. With haste. We can deduce from this that Elizabeth did not know that Mary was pregnant until Mary came to visit her. The timeline doesn't allow for Elizabeth to know. Gabriel visited Mary in Nazareth, and then he told, um, he told her that she's going to conceive a child by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Mary went with haste, without wasting time, to visit Elizabeth at her house. Uh, there was, in those days, no means of communication that Mary could have used to send a message ahead of her to Elizabeth. And so, uh, nor would Elizabeth even have expected that Mary would have been pregnant um, because Mary wasn't married yet. Uh, So we have to conclude that Elizabeth had no idea that Mary was pregnant. And this is an important point because it helps us better understand Elizabeth's interaction with Mary when she does show up at her home. Uh, Verses 40 and 41 tell us that when Mary entered the house and Elizabeth heard her greeting, the baby leaped in Elizabeth's womb. The baby leaped. And this is not an insignificant detail. Uh, This wasn't just the normal kicking of a baby. Elizabeth had felt John moving and kicking before, at six months of pregnancy, Elizabeth knew what the normal activity of her child felt like. This was different. She, was, she says in verse 44 that she felt the babe in her, in her womb leap for joy. Notice, notice the emotion that Elizabeth is attributing to her unborn child. Even though baby John was only six months old, counting from the time of his conception, he's experiencing emotions. And he's expressing his emotions. He's expressing his joy by leaping within the womb. And this reminds me of the lame man in Acts 3 who was healed through the ministry of Peter and John. The man was so filled with joy that he began walking and leaping and praising God. And this is similar to what Elizabeth is describing John to be doing. Uh, He was leaping for joy, only he was leaping while still inside of his mother's womb. Now, much later in life, when John is baptizing at the Jordan River, he spoke about the joy that he has in Jesus Christ. In John 3, verse 29, he says to his disciples, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, John says, this joy of mine is fulfilled. This joy that he has in the bridegroom is fulfilled. Now, John first began to experience the joy of being a friend to the bridegroom 
while he was still in his mother's womb. And, and then some 30 years later, as Jesus was beginning his public ministry, John says that his joy is now fulfilled. Why? Uh, because he heard the voice of the bridegroom. In other words, the Messiah has begun to manifest himself to the world. John's job as the forerunner to the Messiah is now complete. Now that the, the Messiah has uh, begun to manifest himself to the world, John's work is finished. So he says, my joy is fulfilled. This joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, I must decrease. So when Elizabeth tells of John leaping for joy within her womb, we need to understand that this is John's first proclamation of the Messiah. The tiny prophet was prophesying. How so, you ask? Well, I made the statement a couple of minutes ago that there was no way Elizabeth could have known that Mary was pregnant until Mary showed up at her house. The timeline doesn't allow for Elizabeth to have known this before that. Yet, you'll notice from our sermon text that Mary never declares or tells to Elizabeth that, that she's pregnant. A careful reading of verses 41 and 42 lead us to the the profound conclusion that it was John's leaping followed by the Holy Spirit coming upon Elizabeth that caused her to know that Mary was pregnant. That's how Elizabeth was able to respond to Mary's greeting by immediately pronouncing a blessing upon her and the fruit of her womb. Look at verses 41 and 42. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Proclaiming the Messiah is what John had been commissioned by God to do. If you remember, Gabriel said back in Luke 1.15 that John will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So John is not only regenerate while in his mother's womb, but he's also empowered with the Spirit to begin the work of his calling, which is to proclaim the Messiah to the world. And in this particular case, in, in his first prophetic uh, utterance, John is proclaiming the Messiah to Elizabeth. Don't miss the pro-life implications of this. Um, if you're looking for a passage that teaches the sanctity of unborn human life, this is a powerful one. This is a very powerful one. John had been conceived only six months earlier, yet he was already, already regenerate. He was already serving the Lord by prophesying in accordance with his calling, and he was doing this with heartfelt human emotion. He was ex expressing his joy in Jesus Christ. So what does this teach us about the personhood of the child within the womb? If the Lord is pleased to give a spirit to a child in the womb, then what does this teach us about the sanctity of unborn life? And if unborn children are able to express their emotions in ways that can be understood by other people, what does this teach us about the sentience of those children? of their consciousness, of their 
self-awareness, their ability to feel and to perceive the varied conditions of their environment, and their ability to express those feelings in discernible ways. But there's more. I said this is a powerful verse. There's more. Don't, don't overlook one of the most profound declarations in Scripture concerning the sanctity of human life. The fact that John was able to uh, discern the person of Jesus when Jesus entered the home teaches us something about the personhood of children at the very earliest stages of pregnancy. From the timeline given to us by Luke, Jesus was only days old when John recognized him. Jesus was only days old when John recognized him. Remember, Mary uh, left Nazareth right after Gabriel told her that she was going to bear a child. It would have taken her about four or five days to travel from her home in Nazareth to Elizabeth's home in the hill country of Judah. So Jesus was less than a week old when John recognized him. Yet, John recognized him. What does this teach us about the personhood of a newly conceived child? We asked the question about a six-month-old child, what about a five-day-old child? And what does this teach us about the sanctity of that child's life? I'll tell you what it teaches us. It teaches us that the child is a person from the moment of his or her conception. It teaches us that the child is a living human being and possesses an eternal soul from the moment of conception. From the moment of conception, every child is being fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of the Creator. The fact that God has not completed the the knitting together of this person in his or her mother's womb does not mean that the child is not a human person from the very beginning. Do you know what happens during the first week of pregnancy? In the normal course of procreation, a single cell zygote is formed when an egg cell and sperm cell come together through fertilization or conception. And not only does the zygote have proteins and enzymes that are specific to humans, but it also has 46 chromosomes, which is the number that is specific to the human species. So this is a human being, brothers and sisters. This is a human being. The zygote is the creation of a new person. It's God creating a new human life, which includes an eternal soul. And this is when the soul of the new person is joined to his or her body, which is, at this stage, that body is just a single cell. And yet this is a a human being, body and soul. Uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus, of course, was not conceived through the normal course of procreation. As our sermon text informed us last Sunday, uh, Jesus was miraculously conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. But understand that the miracle... Um, was in the conception. It wasn't a nine-month miracle. It was, it was in the, the, the conception. Of, the miracle was in the conception, which is to say the miracle was that a zygote 
was formed in Mary when the Holy Spirit performed his work in her. But from that point forward, I think it's safe for us to say that the child Mary was carrying uh, followed the normal course of of human development. Uh, Just as Jesus grew in stature as a young boy, so he developed as a baby inside Mary's womb. On the first or second day of pregnancy, cellular division begins. Uh, First, the zygote splits into two cells, then into four cells, and then into eight cells. And by the fourth or fifth day uh, of pregnancy, the child now has 60 or more cells. And by the fifth or sixth day, uh, as cellular division continues, a bubble-like structure forms around the cells and this, this cavity within the bubble becomes filled with fluid and it, it, it implants itself in, on the uterine lining of the mother in another day or two. So here at uh, day five or six, uh, the child is not yet implanted in the uterus. And yet this, brothers and sisters, is what Jesus looked like when John the Baptist recognized him as the Messiah. This is what Jesus looked like when John the Baptist said, there's another person in this room and it's the Messiah. It didn't matter that Jesus wasn't implanted in Mary's uterus yet, receiving maternal nourishment from her. It didn't matter that Jesus didn't have a discernible heartbeat yet, It didn't matter that Jesus didn't have 10 fingers and 10 toes yet. John recognized the blastocyst Mary was carrying as a living person that the world had been, the the very living person the world had been waiting 4,000 years for. We must conclude that from the very moment of conception, a living person has come into existence. And we must conclude that this living person has an eternal soul. And we must conclude that this living person uh, with an eternal soul is sacred because he or she bears the image of God. The Declaration of Independence speaks about inalienable rights. Um, These are rights which cannot be transferred or taken away from the person who holds them. One of the inalienable rights that the Declaration of Independence mentions is the right to life. Now, because the scriptures teach us that a human person with an eternal soul uh, who bears the image of God is created at the moment of conception, that person possesses the inalienable right to life. And this is not because the Declaration of Independence says so, but because God says so. The Declaration of Independence is simply recognizing what is self-evident in the world. It's self-evident because God has plainly revealed this to be true, both through special revelation and general revelation. God has plainly revealed that people have the the inalienable right to life. And this includes unborn people. So this is something that the civil government cannot confer upon people, nor is this something that the civil government can withhold from people. I'm talking about the right to life. The role of the civil government is to recognize and then uphold the rights that have been endowed upon people by their creator. 
And any public official who cannot do this, who cannot agree with this, who cannot perform this, is not fit to govern. They're not fit to govern a nation. They're not fit to govern a state or a county or a city or a bingo club. They're not fit to govern. This is because they're deceived. And seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand because their hearts have grown dull and they're in rebellion to God. Now, dear friends, our civil government, as you well know, has blood on its hands. Our nation has blood on its hands. We've murdered millions and millions of unborn people over the past 50 years. And this is not an issue that Christians can be silent about, nor is this an issue that we can leave for others to fight. We must not passively stand on the sidelines while unborn children are being murdered. If you look back at all the atrocities that have been committed uh, throughout history, you'll often notice that the majority of the people who were alive at that time, who, who were aware of the atrocities, were passively silent while those atrocities were happening. And then, as we read in our history books, we, we read of the brave minority that took a stand and fought valiantly against the evil that was being committed in their day. And some of you might be thinking to yourself, as you read these accounts, you know, if I were alive back then, when that atrocity was happened, I would be on the, the side of the people fighting. I would be one of the soldiers fighting. And maybe that's true, maybe you would. But the way you answer this question is not by making a declaration with your mouth. The way you will answer this question is to assess what you're doing today to fight against the atrocity of abortion. What are you doing today to defend the unborn? When the history books are written about our time, what group are you gonna fit in with? Where will your name fit in? Will you be amongst the silent majority that passively stood by the, on the sidelines? Or will you be amongst the brave minority that fought against this evil atrocity? Now coming back to the manner in which Elizabeth discovered that Mary was pregnant, I call your attention to the chronology in verses 41 through 43. First, John leaped in her womb. Second, she's filled with the Holy Spirit. Third, she proclaims a blessing up upon Mary and Jesus. And then fourth, um, if there was any doubt about whether Elizabeth understood who the baby was in Mary's womb, she refers to Jesus as her Lord in verse 43. And here we see something about the nature of prophecy. When John alerted Elizabeth that something special was happening, she was able to understand what John was communicating, not because um, his kick conveyed all that information or his leap conveyed all that information, but because he prophesied and then it pleased the Lord to send the Spirit upon uh, Elizabeth. Verse 43 says that she was filled with the Spirit and so it is the Spirit who ultimately gave her understanding of these things. It's no different however, when you and I speak the truth of God to people. Uh, it, it's the same, the same principles are in effect here. Unless the people you're speaking to are filled with the Holy Spirit, whether prior to you speaking to them or um, 
as you're speaking to them that it pleases God to fill them with the Spirit, they won't understand the truth that you're declaring. This is because the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God, and he reveals them to us so that we might know the things which have been freely given to us by God. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 2.12. And 1 Corinthians 2.14, two verses later, goes on to say that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And so you can talk to the natural man until you're blue in the face, and he will never understand the truths that you're trying to convey. But speak the same words to a Christian, to somebody who's filled with the Spirit, and they'll rejoice in the truth that you're speaking. They'll receive the truth as something that has been freely given to them by God, and they will rejoice in it. Elizabeth understood what John was saying, or what John was leaping, uh, and then she joined in his rejoicing uh, over the Messiah because the Spirit filled her, gave her the understanding of what John was prophesying about. And notice how much the Holy Spirit did reveal to Elizabeth. Not only did she know that Mary was pregnant, but she evidently knew something about the nature of the pregnancy. Notice that she doesn't say to Mary, oh no, what have you done, Mary? You're not even married. Uh, Who's the father? Does Joseph know what's going on? Do your parents know about this? No, that wasn't her reaction at all. The Holy Spirit communicated much information to Elizabeth about Mary's pregnancy so that she was able to immediately join with John in rejoicing in the presence of the Messiah. And so she says in verse 43, but why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Notice that Elizabeth, who's also pregnant, does not show any signs of jealousy. Jesus Jesus is the greater of the two children in that room. The scriptures make that very clear. And Elizabeth obviously understands that. And yet there's absolutely no jealousy. No jealousy whatsoever. In genuine love and humility, she declares her amazement that she has the honor of being visited by the mother of her Lord. And then Elizabeth blesses Mary because she believed what had been promised to her without hesitation. Mary believed what had been promised to her without hesitation. Referring back to what Gabriel had said. Elizabeth already knows this. Somehow Elizabeth knows even of the conversation that Gabriel had with Mary and Mary's immediate response of receiving that as truth and submitting herself to it. And so she says in verse 45, uh, Elizabeth says, blessed is she, referring to Mary, blessed is she who believed for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Elizabeth is not venerating Mary, of course. Uh, This is not what the Roman Catholic Church makes it out to be. Rather, Elizabeth is simply blessing Mary for her faith, for the exercise of her faith. Mary was a woman who took God at his word and submitted herself to God And so Elizabeth says, blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Now, you have to wonder, 
whether Zacharias was in earshot when Elizabeth spoke about the blessing of believing. Our sermon text actually says Mary came to Zacharias' house and then Elizabeth heard her greeting, right? We know that they lived together. We just don't know if Zacharias was home. We know he wasn't talking at the time, so it was quite enough for him to hear what was being said. So you have to wonder whether he was in earshot. And if so, then the blessing that Elizabeth spoke to Mary would have probably sounded like a rebuke to Zacharias. Because if you recall, he, only heard, he also heard a word from the Lord, but he did not immediately believe that God would really fulfill the promise. So Luke is using these two women as exemplary models of faith. Luke is using Mary and Elizabeth both as exemplary models of faith. And all of us, when we read or hear the truth of Jesus Christ, we should respond as Mary and Elizabeth did. And we should respond as John did. We should trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, and we should rejoice in him. In fact, it might be said that we have even more reasons than John and Elizabeth had for rejoicing in Jesus. They rejoiced over his conception. We rejoice in his conception, as well as his perfect life of sinless obedience, as well as his atoning crucifixion, as well as his resurrection to life, as well as his present reign as as King of kings and Lord of lords. We have a multitude of reasons to rejoice in Jesus Christ. And so how should that rejoicing express itself? Well, let's look at Mary. Mary responds uh, in her rejoicing uh, with a song. And we might say that this is her hymn of faith because this is how she chooses to praise the Lord. And what some of you may have noticed is that Mary's hymn of faith looks and sounds a lot like Hannah's hymn of faith. If you're not familiar with Hannah, she is a woman in the Old Testament who was grieved because she could not have children. And so she prayed earnestly to the Lord that he would give her a son and the Lord answered her prayer. So in 1 Samuel 2, we read of Hannah singing a hymn of praise to the Lord. And Mary's hymn of praise sounds a lot like Hannah's hymn of praise. Let me highlight uh, just a couple of the parallels. Hannah sings, my heart rejoices in the Lord because I rejoice in your salvation. Mary sings, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God God my Savior. Hannah sings, no one is holy like the Lord. Mary sings, and holy is his name. Hannah sings, the the bows of the mighty men are broken and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Mary sings, he has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. Hannah sings, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Mary sings, He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. As you can see, there are parallels here. And yet these parallels are not word for word parallels, but neither do I think that they were intended to be. 
I don't think Mary was trying to recite or quote Hannah's hymn of praise. Rather, I think that Mary was so steeped in Scripture that when her heart sings out in praise, the words that bubble up to the surface are the words of Scripture, the words that she's most familiar with, the words that she's been taught by in the reading of Scripture. And of course, Mary was being led by the Holy Spirit, and we can see discernible patterns of praise and worship when people are being led by the Spirit of God. One of the reasons regular Bible reading and scripture meditation is so helpful to our Christian walk is that it gives us the vocabulary for praising and worshiping God. And it doesn't just give us the vocabulary, it gives us uh, exemplary models of praising and worshiping God. We learn how to give God greater glory as we acknowledge different aspects of his work and his being. For example, if you study the structure of Mary's hymn of faith in our sermon text, you'll see three distinct sections. First, Mary expresses the joy that she feels in her heart. We see this in verses 46 and 47. Second, Mary mentions that God has done what God has done specifically for her as an individual. Uh, He regarded her lowly estate and has done great things for Mary, she says. And we see this in verses 48 and 49. And then third, Mary uh, dedicates the majority of her hymn to describing the righteous character of God. Now I'm gonna spend uh, just a couple minutes expanding on each of these three sections, but I'm gonna do it in reverse order. I'm gonna start at the end of Mary's hymn and work backward to the beginning. In the last part of the hymn, which is the largest part, Mary is singing about the righteous character of God. And she begins this third section in verse 49 by declaring God's name to be holy. Uh, And of course, uh, she's not simply saying that his name in the literal sense of that word is holy, but that holiness is who God is. The entirety of his being is holy. God is completely free from sin. He's completely separate from his creation. All his attributes are perfect. All his ways are just. And his nature is pure and utterly incorruptible. Then Mary sings about the mercy of God. And she mentions three um, points of mercy. And and this should be understood to be part of God's holiness. The mercy is an expression of God's holiness. In verse 50, she says, his mercy is upon those who fear him. In verse 42, she says, um, he exalted the the lowly. And in verse 53, she sings, uh, he has filled the hungry with good things. And what she's doing here is showing that God's mercy is part of his holiness. But it's not the entirety of his holiness. There's another side of God's holiness that Mary focuses on, which is actually the counterpart to mercy. And not that it's in opposition, because there's no, there's no opposition within Christ. All his attributes, all his doings are in complete harmony with each other. And yet there, there are attributes of the Lord which um, he gives to some people and, and other attributes he gives to others. And so um, here... Mary focuses first upon God's mercy and then um, she focuses on a counterpart to mercy. And here's where many of us can learn something about how to praise and worship God. Because Mary goes on 
uh, uh, Mary goes in a direction, I should say, that makes many Christians uncomfortable today. She praises God for his justice. Once again, she identifies three aspects of his justice, just like she did when she was singing about his mercy. In verse 51, she sings, he has scattered the proud in the imaginations of their heart. In verse 52, she sings, he has put down the mighty ones from their thrones. And in verse 53, she sings, the rich he has sent away empty. So Mary's hymn of faith is not merely a celebration of the Lord's mercy to her, it's also a celebration of his mercy to all in the earth that he chooses to give his mercy to, and it's a celebration of his justice, which he gives to sinners. When she praises the holy nature of God, she acknowledges the parts that are comfortable to acknowledge as well as the parts that are uncomfortable, at least for some of us. And she praises him for the compassion he shows to certain people. She praises him for the anger and the wrath that he shows to certain people. And this serves as an example to us, brothers and sisters, for how we can praise and worship God. This is where I say it not only gives us a vocabulary for worship, it gives us the concepts and expands our ability to frame our worship in ways that are acceptable to God. Now, continuing to move backwards through Mary's hymn of praise, the second section is where she mentions that what God has done specifically for her. In verses 48 through 49a, Mary sings about how the Lord condescended to her lowliness and did great things. And what are the great things he did for her? Well, perhaps the most obvious is that he gave her the unique privilege of being the mother of the Messiah. And because this is such a singular an unimaginable blessing, Mary sings that all generations will acknowledge her blessings. All generations will call her blessed. Now, here I have to say something about how the Roman Catholic Church treats this passage. I mentioned something similar last Sunday, but I feel the need to mention it again. Catholicism venerates Mary. Uh, They make her out to be more than what the scriptures say about her. They say that she was sinless her entire life. They say that she remained a virgin her entire life. They say that at her death, her body was resurrected and ascended into heaven, much like Jesus Jesus did. They make uh, statues of Mary and they bow down to those statues. They pray to Mary. And many Catholics refer to Mary as the co-redemptrix, believing that she cooperated with Jesus in redeeming people from their sins. Moreover, they teach that Mary is presently making intercession for people alongside her son in heaven. In our reaction against these distortions and abuses that Catholicism Catholicism teaches about Mary, we might be prone to let the pendulum swing too far back in the opposite direction, which is to say we might be prone to minimize what the Bible says about Mary. In our desire not to yield any ground to Catholicism, we might be prone to say that Mary was no more blessed than any other woman in the Bible. But that's not true. The scriptures teach us that Mary was highly favored among women. The Lord had done great things for Mary. And verse 48 is absolutely true. All generations will call her blessed because she was blessed immensely. 
Calling Mary blessed, however, doesn't yield any ground to Catholicism. Calling her blessed simply acknowledges that God has given Mary certain blessings that he hasn't given to others. And all of it comes down to grace, having received the Lord's unmerited favor. So when we call Mary blessed, the focus is not primarily on the one who receives the blessing, but rather on the one who gives the blessing. So when we think of how blessed Mary was, this should direct our focus not upon Mary, but to God. We should be looking and say, wow, look at the enormous blessings that Mary received. What does that tell us about God? That, that, that makes God all the more praiseworthy that he would, he would give his blessings to such a humble woman. Now moving to the first part of Mary's hymn of faith, her spiritual devotion to the Lord is, is certainly evident in verses 46 and 47. She sings, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Why does her soul magnify the Lord? Given what we've already seen in the second and third parts of, of her hymn, it's because her soul has experienced the greatness and holiness and mercy of God. And, and the experience is primarily one of joy. Having received those things, it's, her response is primarily one of joy. This is why she says in verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now th this is the God that Mary magnified, the God who saves. Uh, Martin Luther said that her song was about the great works and deeds of God, and he lists three of them for the strengthening of our faith, for the comforting of those of low degree or those who are humble, and for the terrifying of all the mighty ones on the earth. This is Luther's comment regarding Mary's hymn of faith. It serves three purposes, uh, for strengthening our faith, for comforting those of low degree, and for terrifying all the mighty ones on the earth. Luther said that, uh, we're to let this hymn serve this threefold purpose. And for Mary's, Mary sang it not for herself alone, but for all of us, and that we can sing it after her, Luther says. And I think he's right. I think Luther's right. The words of Mary's song strengthen our faith in Jesus Christ. They comfort us with the promise that God will lift us up when we're low, and they serve as a warning to the proud. And as Mary's hymn does this sanctifying work in us, it teaches us, it accomplishes a fourth purpose. Um, I'll add a fourth to what Martin Luther said, um, the, the, the point I've already made, and that is that it teaches us to sing a hymn of our own. Mary's hymn teaches us to sing a hymn of our own. Much like Hannah's hymn probably taught Mary how to sing her hymn, Mary's hymn teaches us how to sing our own hymn. God has done great things for you, brothers and sisters. He has done great things for you. Are you aware of his many blessings? Do you praise him for those blessings? And does your soul magnify his glory because of his mighty deeds of salvation? We have countless reasons to rejoice in our Lord, brothers and sisters. We have countless reasons, like Mary did. So let your soul magnify the Lord and let your spirit Rejoice in God your Savior. Amen. Let's pray. 
This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.